Hi, my name's Nick Smith, founder and creator of Part-Time Pilot. Now, after three years, five flight instructors, and over $22,000 out of my bank account, I was finally able to achieve my dream and become a private pilot. Now, I have a bachelor's and master's in aerospace engineering and over 10 years experience as a flight test engineer. So if it was that difficult for someone like me, no wonder eight out of 10 student pilots never end up becoming a pilot. So this is why I created Part-Time Pilot, and this is why I'm creating this podcast. This podcast will be your audio ground school and just another way part-time pilot is making flight training easier and more consumable for you. So with over 300 students and counting that have used our content to pass the FAA private pilot exams, I hope that you can use this podcast to become the next student to do so. So thank you and I hope you enjoy listening to the part-time pilot Audio Ground School Podcast. Hey, hey, welcome in. My name is Nick. I'm the host of the Audio Ground School Podcast. That's what you're listening to. I don't know if you knew that, but this is where we go through the part-time pilot online ground school, all of it, every single lesson in audio format so you can consume it wherever you are at, wherever you're going, whatever you're doing, you can consume and learn for your private pilot's license. We understand that it's expensive to get a private pilot's license. And one of the ways we can help with that is we can make things more accessible because since it's expensive, you probably have to work at a job to make money to pay for it. So that means you have less time. What we do is try and make that process of learning your ground and all that stuff a little bit easier and more, you know, less time consuming, easier to consume the content. So that's what we're doing here. And it's completely free. So not sure if it'll be free all the time, but I do like giving out free content. And I'm actually going to get to that right here. So one of the things I've been doing is for the last few episodes, and I want to continue to do it, is I have been reading off, you know, one or two reviews that we get on Apple Podcasts. Now, apparently you can't do a review on Spotify. You can rate it out of five stars. So please do that. But you can't like leave a review where you actually say words. So if you're listening on Spotify, Unfortunately, I don't think you can do that yet. But if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you know, what we're going to do is if you leave us a review, which we highly recommend, it really helps us out. Well, we might read it off for you here on the podcast. And we now over 120,000 downloads. So your review is going to be heard by a lot of people. So if you want that, leave us a review. It also helps us out a lot. So I really appreciate it. So today we have a couple of short ones. But one is just thanks, five stars. Thanks, dude. Such awesome content. That is by buying over crying. <laughs> I like the name. I like the short and sweet and the five star review. So I appreciate that. The other one is by CMOS J. And they said super detailed content, five stars. And then they said, I kind of feel guilty for getting this much information for free. Now, that made me think about the next thing I want to talk about. Now, if you're on like Facebook in a Facebook group, aviation Facebook group, you'll see like a lot of times people post like what's the best online ground school. And then I guarantee you, you know, 30, 20%, 30% of the comments are going to be, you don't need an online ground school. You don't need a ground school. You can get everything for free. There's people say YouTube or they'll say the P-Hack, you know, the FAA P-Hack or something like that. And that is 100% true. All this information, the FAA is, you know, it's a government 
entity. So it's taxpayer funded. So all the information is available to the public for free. You can get the far aim. You can download that for free. The the knowledge supplement for free, the PHAC, other really helpful documents. And we all list those in our course. You can get all that stuff for free. You can go on YouTube. You can, can find all this information for free. There's even I've even seen like free live ground school sessions that people will do. So it's 100% true. It's been free. This information has been free for a long time. That's one of the reasons why I like giving out free content. I just like to try to do it in a different way. One that saves you time, like our free study guide. We try to break things down in a different way than like the P hack does or a long winded YouTube video does. That's why my YouTube videos are free. That's why in the show notes, I post YouTube videos for you guys. And, and I don't want you guys to feel guilty. This stuff has always been free. I'm just making it easier to consume, more understandable and easier for you guys with the new and advancing technologies that we have. But so someone might ask, well, well, how do you make money with your online ground school? And it comes to this concept called the transformation is in the transaction. Now, I heard this when I went to like a business training and the guy said that and it, it sort of just blew my mind. Now, what that means, the transformation is in the transaction, is that there can be, and I know this is very true for me, and I see it in a lot of customers and other people that there you could be given all the free information, all the free, like someone could literally just for free, just be like, look, here's how you do it. I will tell you right now how exactly how to do it, what you need to learn, everything right here. And some of us, a small percentage of us, you know, maybe like those like Batman types that were born in the darkness and are really scrappy, will find those free things and we'll we'll take all that, we'll we'll grind and we'll find all the free stuff and we'll use it to for this example, no matter what it is, to get our private pilot's license. But most people do not make the transformation inside of ourselves. You know, that transformation that that makes us dedicated to consistently studying, that makes us set goals in our minds, that actually puts forward the action that we need to take in order to do whatever it is. In this case, like learn all the knowledge and become a pilot until we've made some sort of transaction in our mind. It can be any dollar value. It changes depending on what you are. But just think about that psychology of that a little bit and ask yourself if that's true for you. I think it's true for most of us. And there's already been all this free content out there. That's why I don't feel bad or feel like we're going to lose business because I'm giving out free content. I want to help as many people as possible. And the people that just want free content, they're never going to purchase anyways. So it doesn't really matter that I give it to me. It doesn't really matter that I give out free content. Our ground school is there for the people who are ready to make that transformation the transformation is through the transaction. They make the transaction to purchase the ground school. And then now the transformation in their psychology and the inside of them has been made. They're now ready to take action. And then we accept them into the ground school and we have everything laid out perfectly for them, right? Everything is structured. It builds upon one another. We have the written lessons, the audio lessons, the video lessons all in one place. And then you take the quiz and then the next lesson builds on that lesson. We have all that. We have the support group. We have the bonus content that you can download that's specific to the way that I speak and not the way the FAA speaks or other people speak. So if you like the way I speak, you get that bonus content. And then there's a lot of downloads to make your life easier when you're flying. So all that type of stuff is in there. And then the custom report, the personal touch that we have after you go through the course and we give you a custom report of your tests, your practice tests and some other answers, that all is what's special to the online ground school and what I think that people pay for. 
We want people who have made that transformation within themselves and are ready to go for that goal. To sum it up, that's why CMOS J don't feel guilty about getting this much information for free because I've already thought about it. I want to give this stuff to you guys for free because I know that once you're ready and if you really want to work with us, once you're ready, put yourselves into action and really go for that goal and become a good pilot, pass your exams that will be there. We'll be there waiting for you and you can do that. That's just my little rant on why I give out stuff free and all that stuff and the difference between, you know, paying for ground school and not, or paying for anything. And if you think about it, it it goes for anything in your life. Like think about how much you value something that either maybe you picked up on the ground for free, or if you paid a hundred dollars for it, you're going to value the thing. You just psychologically are going to keep the thing that you paid a hundred dollars for. You're going to keep it more safe, keep it in a safe place, cherish it a little bit more, and you're going to pay more attention to it. You're going to be there for it, whatever it is, when you've had some sort of investment into it. And I think a lot of people too often, they just try and get like free things and stuff like that. But if you really want that transformation, you got to put that investment in into yourself. So, all right. Okay. I said I was done with my rant, but now I'm done with my rant. Now the last thing, sorry, we're already kind of 10 minutes into the episode, but I want to start another thing. So to be a little bit extra, a little bit bonus content from just our lessons. And I think they're really valuable. If you don't like this stuff, skip ahead to the lessons. No problem. You can just, you know, on the Apple, you can just click the 30 seconds a few times and and you'll be to the lessons. But what I want to do is I want to, one, start the tradition of reading off reviews. So I really appreciate when you guys leave a review. But two, I want to do some listener questions that are sent in. This is the first time me announcing it, so we don't have any. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to choose some from our Facebook study group. So if you want to join our group, you can. You just have to tell us what your email is and answer a couple questions. But that is you go to Facebook and you search for the part-time pilot on the ground school study group. And then if you ask your questions in the group, I might choose from that and read it off here on the podcast. And then if you don't have Facebook, you can email us a question for the podcast. Just tell us it's for the podcast. You want to hear it explained at team at parttimepilot.com. So it's kind of like some listener mail, right? So we're going to do a listener mail segment at the beginning of maybe not every episode, but every other episode, I want to consistently kind of do it. So we're going to start that off today with some listener mail. And I got a couple of good questions for you guys. All right. So the first question is pretty topical because we're going to start in the lessons today. We're going to start a section on cross-country planning, which is a big topic, you know, and it's very important for your flight training, your flight lessons when you get into the cross-country planning portions of it and your check ride. And you will be asked on certain things on the FA written exam as well. So it's important for all of it. But because we're about to get into that, this is kind of, you know, very topical to what we're talking about. We got a question from Trevor in our group who said, I got this practice sectional chart and I'm currently trying to find the magnetic course, but the closest isogonic line to my destination doesn't have any degrees or it lists zero degrees. Any way I can figure this out? This is a great question by Trevor. So it just so happens that Trevor lives in and he's looking at a sectional chart that is in the area of the United States that is along what's called the agonic line. So isogonic lines show the pattern of magnetic declination or variation around the world. And so there's like a chart of the United States. We'll get into this a little bit in the next upcoming lessons. So I'm not going to go too deep into it. But basically, 
when you measure something on a course, you measure on a chart, you're measuring a true course. And then you want to convert that to a magnetic course because you want it to be in magnetic because when you're flying in the plane, everything is based off of magnetic direction because you're using a, a magnetic compass and then you calibrate your heading indicator to the magnetic compass. Now, the conversion to true course to magnetic course is done by variation. And the variation changes depending on where you are around the world because the magnetic field lines around the world are different strengths. So the, the compasses are affected differently depending on where you are. These lines come off both poles and they kind of arc down. And if you look up, you know, isogonic lines in the United States on Google, you can see what I'm talking about. And so there's actually some lines around the world where they run from south to north, that where the variation is zero. So it just so happens that the magnetic variation in that area is perfectly zero, and that's called an agonic line. And all the other ones are called isogonic lines. They're lines where the, the variation is the same, and they all kind of generally run from north to south, but then as you get further east and further west, they start to bend in the United States. So anyways, he just happened, and it goes through from like the northeast of Minnesota, Wisconsin, Illinois, I believe, you know, Tennessee, parts of Tennessee, parts of Georgia, it looks like, or Alabama, and then goes down, you know, Gulf of Mexico and the Caribbean. So that's an agonic line. And so he was looking at a sectional chart and looking at an area and he saw his isogonic line on the chart, but it had zero degrees. So that means his variation is zero degrees. That means his true course is the same as his magnetic course. All right. So that just so happens that it was kind of a, a little bit of a luck that he happened to be on an agonic line. If, for example, he was in like Southern California, he would have a variation. He would see isogonic lines around like 13 or 14 degrees east. So his variation, his difference between true course and magnetic course would 14 degrees difference. Okay, so that was the first question. Great question, Trevor. The next question was by Matthew. So Matthew had a question basically around, he says, if my airport elevation is a thousand feet, no matter what the atmospheric conditions present, if I have the altimeter dialed in correctly, should it read zero or 1,000 feet? So he's trying to figure out the altimeter. And that can be a, a confusing thing to kind of think of, especially with the different altitudes we went over earlier in an earlier podcast. Episode. So great question, Matthew. And so the answer is basically you have your altimeter and you have your altimeter setting. So your altimeter assumes standard pressure of 29.92 is a mercury. The pressure is not always standard. It's often, more often than not, not standard. And when it's not standard, ATC and METAR reports and stuff like that, they're going to tell you what the pressure is in your area. So they're going to, in inches of mercury. So they might say 30.02. And you as a pilot want to constant, much often as you can, update that value to what the current pressure is in the area that you're flying. So if you're flying around an area and ATC says pressure setting is 30.02, you want to dial in the pressure setting on your altimeter to 30.02. This recalibrates your altimeter to the pressure that is actually outside. And so it makes your altimeter more accurate. And we want our altimeters to be as accurate as possible. Now, the term true altitude is if you were to take a giant tape measure and measure from your aircraft all the way down to sea level, the sea level line, right? That is true altitude. So we want, by constantly updating our pressure setting, we want to be as close to true altitude as possible. That's essentially what we're doing. We always want to know our height above sea level because things on the charts 
things that ATC will, will talk about are listed in terms of sea level, you know, from sea level. So things like elevation of mountains, right? So if you're flying over a mountain that has a top elevation of 5,000 feet from sea level, you want to know your altitude on your altimeter in terms of a distance from sea level. So that's what a true altitude is. And that's what we want to always be as close as possible to by constantly updating our pressure setting to get as close as possible to that. So we know that if our altimeter says we're at 6,000 feet, okay, good. We have a thousand feet above that mountain. Now there's also errors contributing to non-standard temperatures, but there's no tool. We don't have a temperature setting on our altimeter, so we can't adjust for that non-temperature only pressure. So we won't, it's rare that we'll be exactly the true altitude, but with, when we do that pressure setting, we'll get very, very close. Okay. So that was a great question. So, but I didn't truly answer it. He said, if my airport elevation is a thousand feet, no matter what the atmospheric conditions present, if I have the altimeter set correctly, I should read zero or a thousand feet. Well, I'm assuming he's on the ground. The airport elevation is a thousand feet. If he has his altimeter dialed in correctly, it should read a thousand feet, it should read accurately. All right, guys. So those are some good questions. I don't think we're going to do it on every lesson, but I, I think it'd be really cool to, you know, encourage you guys to ask some questions, some tough questions that you want explained, you know, verbally. And so you can listen to it on audio and we get good questions from our students all the time. And so send in those questions, team at parttimepilot.com or join our Facebook group. That's online ground school study group by part-time pilot. So search for that, join it, just answer those questions. And we're not going to do this every episode. We're going to try to make this consistent and a new segment that we do, listener mail. So, all right, without further ado, it's been a long, you know, a long intro here today, but we're starting to add some new segments that I think will also help you guys out there listening. So that's kind of my goal here. And again, as always, if you want to, you can just skip. With all that said, now for those waiting for our lessons, let's get into our lessons. Okay, so today's lesson is going to be lesson one of section 12. And this is in the step one online ground school private pilot lessons course. So if you're following along in the ground school, go to my courses, go to the step one course, go to section 12 on cross country planning. We just finished up the section last episode, last few episodes on weight and balance. Those were some really in-depth good episodes. So go and check those out. They also linked to some videos, some of our YouTube videos on that in those. So if you haven't done that, it's part of this cross country planning. You have to do your weight and balance. So it's kind of part of that, but it deserved its own section. So go and check that out if you haven't. But today we're going to start section 12 cross country planning lesson one. And then lesson one is going to be procedure for plotting your course. And then lesson two is going to be what information do you need? And I think we'll be able to get to both those lessons here today. So let's get to it. Procedure for plotting your course. So get out your sectional or terminal area chart. You want to use terminal area if your entire course lies within the map. This has more detail and is easier to distinguish landmarks. Or, so terminal areas have a smaller scale. They're more zoomed in than uh, sectional charts. So you want to use that if you can. If your entire course is on a terminal area, you want to use that because it has more detail. But chances are for most cross-country flights, you're going to need a sectional chart. And we're going to go over these charts in a later episode. So for now, if you have questions about specific about the charts, don't worry, we're going to get to that. So get it out, you know, whether it's on your iPad or whatever it is. And then I have a note in here that this is where the iPad presents its value to a pilot because you can zoom in on these charts, which really, really helps. You can point and click and 
have automatic distance calculations and things like that and things like four flight and it makes cross country planning a lot easier. Now, students ask me like should I get four flight? Should I get an iPad right away? I always recommend doing learning the old school way first. Once you have that down, rewarding yourself with something that'll make life easier like four flight and iPad and GPS. So, that means learning from a sectional chart learning VOR navigation, ground-based navigation before you do that. That's what I did. I'm really glad I did because now I feel secure that if any of that stuff goes down, that new technology, you know, it's down for a little bit. I lose my battery, my iPad, and my iPad overheats. I know how to get around. So that's what I tell students, but they can be very valuable in terms of cross-country planning. The first thing you want to do is draw a straight line from your departure airport to your destination airport. So for this example, we're just going to assume we're making any stops. We're just going from one place to another. Next, pick a cruising altitude by following along on this line on your chart from the departure airport to destination airport and give yourself a thousand feet above obstacles and terrain that your line crosses over. If you are traveling east, your VFR cruising altitude should be an odd increment of 1000 plus 500. If you are traveling west, your VFR cruising altitude should be an even increment of 1,000 plus 500. This is called the hemispherical rule, which mandates a set of altitudes eastbound and westbound for eastbound and westbound aircraft so the aircraft fly at different altitudes for traffic separation. Now, they also do this for IFR. This is the rule for VFR, and it's called the hemispherical rule, and you'll get asked about this on your FA written exam, and I'm gonna go over exactly what this means. So per the FAR, the hemispherical rule applies to all VFR cruising flight, except while holding in a holding pattern of two minutes or less, or while turning at an altitude of more than 3,000 feet above the surface. So that means we have to be in cruise flight above 3,000 feet, higher than 3,000 feet above the surface for this rule to apply. Then once that is, once you're in cruise above that altitude, if on a magnetic course, so again, magnetic course, not a true course, so it's determined by your magnetic course, from zero degrees to 179 degrees, so that would be eastbound, right? You are required to cruise at an odd numbered altitude in thousands of feet plus 500 feet. So that would be like 3,500 feet, 5,500 feet, 7,500 feet, 9,500 feet, 11,500 feet, and so on. You get the picture. Then if you're on a magnetic course from 180 to 359, which would be westbound, you do the even numbered altitudes in thousands of feet plus 500. So that would be like 4,500, 6,500, 8,500, or 10,500 feet. For example, if the magnetic course, your magnetic course is 259 degrees, you would fly at an even thousand because you are westbound in terms of magnetic course plus 500 feet of altitude, such as 4,500 or 6,500. If magnetic course was 005 degrees, you would fly at an odd thousand plus 500 feet altitude, such as 5,500 or 7,500. So if the highest elevation of an obstacle or train within your route, so we drew our straight line, we're just gonna assume that we can fly direct, like we just beeline it. As soon as we take off, we just beeline it to where we're landing and we just go fly in for a straight on approach. That's what we assume for now, right? So if there's terrain within your route at 5,679 feet, then we want to be, again, 1,000 feet above that. And then we want to make sure we also meet that hemispherical rule depending on what direction we're flying.
So now let's discuss some more examples that consider both terrain and the hemispherical rule that we just covered. Consider the tallest terrain along your straight line route is 6,749 feet. So 6,749 feet MSL, you are traveling east. A good altitude would be 9,500 feet. And another example, if you are traveling west and your highest terrain is only 1,703 feet or 1703, a good altitude would be one that is high enough that you can glide safely to an airport along route in the case of an emergency, but is not so high that you waste time and fuel during your climb. An aircraft's gliding ability depends on several factors such as atmospheric conditions and type of aircraft. But in general, a student pilot will be training in an aircraft with about a 10 to 1 glide ratio. You'll want to know for your specific aircraft what that is, but this means that the aircraft can glide 10 feet for every one foot that it descends. So if on your route, the furthest airstrip, whether that's controlled, uncontrolled, or even a private grass strip or flat field that you could use in an emergency is 10 miles away from your course, you will want to make sure that you are flying at least one mile above the ground level of the airport. That's So it's 10 miles away, you want to be one mile above that airport level. So that's the 10 to 1 ratio. Specifically, if the airport is 10 miles away and it is at an elevation of, let's say, 1100 feet MSL, then you will want to fly at an altitude that is a mile above that, and one nautical mile is 6,076 feet. So if we add 6,076 feet to our elevation of 1,100 feet in this example, we get 7,176 feet. So going back to our example flying west with the tallest terrain at only 1,703 feet, 1,703 feet, you can clear that safely. You can clear that elevation safely with not much altitude. You want to make sure that you have enough room to glide safely to an airport. And if the closest airport or flat field for an emergency landing is 10 miles away at an elevation of 1,100 feet, then flying a mile above that at 7,176 feet, as we said, and adjusting for the VFR cruising altitude rule of even 1,000 foot increments plus 500, a good altitude to choose might be 8,500 feet. So you have to consider both, right, the terrain. Then you also want to consider your glide ratio, getting to a flat field, a runway, or some sort of surface where you can land in an emergency, and the hemispherical rule that we talked about. We have a note here that, you know, in the deserts of Southern California, where I fly a lot, uh, especially when I was doing my training on cross-country flights, most pilots don't need to worry about gliding safely to an airport because in the case of an emergency, they can just land on the hard, flat surface of the desert. So there's plenty of places to land when you're flying over a flat desert. So therefore, the altitude usually flown over desert terrain is usually 3,000 to 4,000 feet above ground level. So it depends on where you are. You know, if, if you're flying over a bunch of water or mountainous or hilly terrain, a bunch of trees, you know, that's going to be different. You're going to have to look at that glide ratio that you have and sort of plan ahead to make sure that you'll be able to get somewhere in an engine out situation where you want to be. Now, some of these you might be thinking, well, 9,500 feet, 8,500 feet, you know, that's nearing the service ceiling, you know, the maximum ceiling that some of these single propeller general aviation aircraft can fly up to. And depending on the day, if the day's hot, density altitude's high, it might be really hard, if not impossible, to even get to those altitudes. That surface ceiling might be even lower, and you might spend a lot of time and fuel climbing all the way up. So that's another thing to think about. 
that if your route requires you to safely go up to, let's say, 9,500 feet and your service ceiling of your aircraft is 10,000 feet, well, now you're like, well, do I want to spend all that time, all that fuel climbing up to almost the service ceiling? And if it's a hotter day than expected, you know, I might not even be able to get up to that high. So maybe I want my route to be different so that I'm not flying over this train. Maybe I want to fly around terrain instead so that I can have that lower altitude. So these are some of the things to think about when you're planning your flight. Another important thing when plotting your route is VOR airways. Now, this is true whether you have, you know, your iPad with ForeFlight and a GPS or you have a built-in display, you know, glass cockpit with a GPS in your aircraft. Doesn't matter. You know, you want to plan for if you don't have your GPS. So you want to still have in there on your cross-country plan sheet, which I'll show you as we get to it. You also want to have VOR and ground-based navigation systems like VOR checks and pilotage and dead reckoning, so visual checkpoints as well, listed in case your GPS ends up you know, failing or you can't use it. So another important thing to consider is VOR airways. You know, Sure, you can fly by your heading indicator and compass, but what if that's just straight pilotage and dead reckoning without any ground-based navigation or GPS? But what if your wind calculations are wrong and the wind has been blowing you left, of course, for the entire trip? You can be flying a certain heading, but your ground check is completely different due to the wind. This is why flying to and from VORs on airways can be very helpful. So you want to have those additional checks. So you want to have you know visual check marks, but if the wind has blown you way off course on a longer leg of your flight and you have no idea, you can't see, or maybe the visibility is a little bit worse and you cannot find your visual checkpoint, you want to be able to use VORs as another option to see where you are. So this is a tried and true strategy by pilots for many, many years. So take your straight line course and find VOR radios along the way that can pinball you to and from without adjusting your course too much. So, right, we drew that straight line and now we have drawn a line that's kind of individual legs of our flight that go from checkpoint to checkpoint, visual checkpoint to visual checkpoint. And now we want to kind of adjust those so that they're along a VOR radial or at least our checkpoint, we can mark down the radial we'll be crossing from a VOR at that checkpoint. And we'll get into what all this means in detail, so don't worry. But this is sort of just a summary of how you want to think when you're planning your flight. You want to think about the VORs, VOR radials, and airways to make your life easier. You also need to make sure that you'll be able to tune into the VOR. In other words, you need to be in line of sight of the VOR because these ground-based navigations, you have to have a line of sight. So that means like from the VOR station on the ground, a direct line to your aircraft cannot be blocked by mountains or terrain or any other obstructions or something, right? So it can't be on the other side of a mountain. If it is, you're going to have to climb higher above the mountain so you have that direct line to the VOR so you can receive its signal. Now, starting from your departure airport, follow the line again on the chart and look for obstacles or airspace that will cause you to change direction or altitude. Again, we started with that straight line from our departure airport to our destination airport. And now we're going to look at, you know, things that like airspace, terrain or obstacles that we want to avoid. And we're going to start to adjust that straight line. We're going to deviate from that straight line with, again, the VOR airways, the VOR radials, and visual landmarks in mind. So you'll have to make a decision whether you want to spend more fuel to fly around an obstacle or more fuel to climb above it. And this may impact your previous decision on altitude. For example, if you choose 
chose your altitude to be 9,500 feet MSL because of a mountain that lies in your path at 8,000 feet MSL, but this is the only mountain in the area, it's actually safer to fly around that mountain because of all the hazards and the winds and the mountain wave turbulence that goes along with that. And you only have 1,500 feet of clearance in this example. It'd be way more safe to fly around it. Plus, you're going to have to spend all that fuel getting up to your service ceiling. And if it's a hot day, you might not even be able to get up that altitude in a single engine prop airplane. So these are all, all things you want to consider. And that's as long as you don't have to go super far out of the way, right? So just, again, things to consider. But this will keep you out of, when you go around, it keeps you at a lower altitude and safe from any mountain winds, dangerous drowned drafts, and mountainous terrain and mountainous mountain associated weather. And so it's just a lot safer. So really think about that. And if you, if you plan something like this on your check ride, cross-country scenario, your examiner, if you choose to go over a mountain, be sure to get a lot of questions about the hazard, all the hazards that come with. That's just going to open up a bag of questions on your oral exam. So if you can fly around a mountain, I would do so as long as it's not completely out of the way and it's not completely egregious. You know, if the terrain was like 3,000 feet, you know, that's fine. You can climb up to like 6,000 feet, 7,000 feet and go over it. But just be prepared to get those types of questions. If it's easy enough for you to fly around and avoid an airspace, then go ahead and plot your course around it if you don't feel comfortable. Like, let's say it's a class Bravo airspace. If it's easy to just fly around it, you don't want to worry about having to get clearance or get an endorsement, right? As a student pilot, you have to have your student pilot certificate plus an endorsement from your instructor to fly in class Bravo. So if those are things to consider, if you have those clearances, you had that endorsement from your instructor and you get flight following, they can just clear you through the class Bravo, no problem, but they might not keep you on the route that you planned. So keep that in mind, right? They're going to tell you where to go, what heading to fly through the class Bravo airspace or wherever you tell them you want to go. So that most likely is not going to be the route that you choose. But as you get used to these certain routes, you'll know what flight following most likely will be giving you and you can plan ahead on your cross country flight for that route. And so just the, the more you do it, the more you do a route, the more familiar you get with it and stuff like that. But again, things to consider. So, but it's much easier to just call flight following and get a clearance, right? Than to try and navigate under or around class Bravo without the clearances, because, you know, we all make mistakes and maybe, you know, you bump into that class Bravo airspace and bust a Bravo without clearance, which is bad. So we don't want to do that. So it's much easier to call flight following and just get a clearance through whatever airspace you might encounter. Not only will they clear you through that airspace, but they will also notify you of any traffic winds or other obstacles there to help us. So let's use them. So again, just to kind of summarize, draw a straight line course, adjust a course for terrain, obstacles, and prominent checkpoints, and select a cruising altitude. That's kind of what we're, we're talking about, the first steps to a cross-country plan. Once we've adjusted our course to avoid terrain, obstacles, high traffic routes, caution areas, military or restricted areas, VORs, and airspaces, you will now want to find waypoints along your route. Waypoints or checkpoints are for a pilot's use only to make sure you are on the correct route. They are a checkpoint or a waypoint. When choosing a waypoint, you ideally want it to have three elements. You want it to be a visual landmark, a VOR check, and you don't want it to be more than 20 to 30 miles from your last waypoint. So what does this mean? It means you want to find something on the ground. It has to be marked on your sectional chart. Okay. So for example, they have a lot of visual check marks, like sometimes they have water towers, big white water towers. So that might be one or a lake is another good one. So let's say for this example, a lake. So lake is easy to visually see from the airplane, easy to spot and mark on your sectional chart. So this right here is the first thing you can check. You know, you look out your window, you see the lake, you look on your map, you see the lake, you know, right where you are. Okay. The next thing 
is a VOR check. So we want to know whether a VOR radial that we will be crossing. So if there's a nearby VOR, whatever radial lines up with that lake, for our example, let's say it's a 210 radial of a nearby VOR, crosses through that lake, we want to jot down that VOR radial because let's say the visibility is bad and we can't see the lake. Well, if we dial in our VOR, we see that it's we're on 210, then we know that we're close to the lake. So that's a backup is the VOR check. And then you don't want it more than 20 to 30 miles. I would say even that is pushing it, maybe make the maximum 20 to 25 miles from your last waypoint. So you don't want any legs of your flight more than that. And that's because what we got to before, you always want to be, you know, every so often you want to be checking where you are on the map to avoid getting lost, right? So you want to make sure if you fly too far, let's say you make it 40 to 50 miles and the wind is blowing you off course, you haven't checked in a long time. So the longer you don't check and the longer the wind blows you off course and the further you are away and the more likely you are when you've flown the 50 miles to be looking at your chart and have no idea where you're at. So we want to make sure that we have you know, no more than 20 to 25, maybe 30 miles from your last waypoint so that we're consistently checking where we are, we're not getting lost and things like that. So for example, a good waypoint, again, we'll go back to the lake example, would be a big lake where you can tune into a nearby VOR and double check your position with that VOR uh, that is about 20 to 25 miles from your last checkpoint or VOR. So you can jot down the time of flight and compare to what you estimated during your planning. So we'll get into that as well. That's another thing to check to make sure the winds are correct, you're where you should be at the time that you planned that you should be there. If it took longer than you expected, then you could be experiencing strong headwinds. That means you're now burning more fuel and you may need to stop for fuel sooner. So if you're already kind of like close to your planned fuel limit, like let's say you plan a fuel and it's like, oh yeah, this is, we're gonna burn almost all our fuel. And then on your first checkpoint, let's say it's 20 nautical miles and you expect it to take 10 minutes and it takes you 15 minutes. So now you can be like, okay, well, we're flying in a strong headwind. So I just had an extra five minutes of fuel burn. I don't think we're going to be able to make the entire cross-country flight because we're already going to be cutting it close on fuel. So let's make a change and let's plan for a fuel stop. So these are some of the things to be thinking about on a cross-country flight. Okay, so the other thing is if you don't have the currency at night, to fly at night for some reason, or you just want to land during the daylight, that's another thing. You know, if your flight's taking longer than expected, you want to think about the time you'll be landing, maybe weather's coming into your destination airport at a certain time. So all things to consider. And that's why we do these meticulous calculations for a cross-country plan. All right, a couple other tips for using your plotter tool. So we're going to get into a little bit on your plotter tool. And then I have a video on how to use the plotter tool. So the one I recommend is the one with the wheel that spins. I have like a Jeppesen one here in the examples. The one with just the half circle that does not spin, like almost like, you know, those degree compass things. It's a half circle that does not spin. It's a little bit different because for every reading, there's two possibilities that it could be. So you have to kind of, there's some more rules you have to understand. It's just a little bit more work. That's why I recommend you know, spinning ones. I'll put a link in the show notes of the one we, I recommend so that you guys can get that on Amazon. It's not very much, but that's the one I recommend to all our students and the one that we have in our course and the one we're going to talk about here just real quickly. So when using your navigation plotter, be aware that the zero point or zero miles, right? So when you're using the scale on the edge of your plotter is not at the physical end of the plotter. So there'll be the physical end of the plotter, right? The end of the ruler part on the scale. 
and then there will be a tick mark or zero. So make sure you're not lining it up with the end of it, you're lining it up with the zero tick mark, if that makes sense. The zero is marked by its own mark. That's for these plotters that I recommend and most plotters I've seen, but check with your plotter. Typical scales on the navigation plotter are sectional and WAC or WAC. These scales are labeled on each side of your plotter. Be cognizant of which scale you are wanting to use. When using a sectional chart, we want to use the scale for sectional and nautical miles. So there's a bunch of different scales, so it can get kind of confusing, but we want to use nautical miles. Okay, so you want to look for the nautical mile scale. And as you can see, we have a picture here in the lesson that shows where it says nautical mile. And then there's two scales, there's one above and one below, and you want to pick the one on sectional. You're going to be using a sectional chart, okay? If we're going to use a terminal area, there's another scale on this plotter. It's in the middle of the plotter, on the clear part of the plotter. It's not on the edges. That's the one for the terminal area chart. So obviously a terminal area has a different scale. So we want to use, if we're using a terminal area chart, it has a more zoomed in scale. So we want to use that on our plotter tool. So you got to be cognizant of which chart you're using and what scale you're measuring with on your plotter tool. And again, we have a picture labeling these on the plotter tool that I recommend. So another tip is to use pencil and have a good eraser. This way you won't have old confusing lines on your chart. So as you're drawing on your sectional chart, I use a pencil when I'm planning. There's a lot of things to change, right? So at first I teach to draw that straight line from your takeoff airport to your destination airport. And then you're going to erase that line after you, you know, start to put in your checkpoints. It'll kind of zigzag you. It's not exactly a straight line, right? So then you'll want to erase that line. So I draw it on lightly with pencil first and I have a good eraser. And then once all the planning is done and my course is solidified, I then thicken it. I don't draw like super hard so I can't erase it, but I thicken it a lot. You know, using my ruler, I thicken the line a lot so that it's easier for me to see when I'm flying. Just little things, especially on like your check ride or something. You know, I have tips to like fold your sectional chart into, make it a really easy fold, like fold it into so it's just like a, a one foot by one foot area of where you know you're going to fly for your check ride. And this, you can do this for all flights on whatever route you have. Just fold it into a little one foot by one foot square. So you're not having to deal with that giant folding and unfolding of your sectional chart. And then just fold it in half, put that in your kneeboard. So then all you have to do is you pull it out from your kneeboard and you just unfold one fold, just one fold and boom, there's the area with your line and your, your route right there. The, the route is bold. It's these little things that make things so much easier. So you're not, you know, trying to unfold it, trying to refold it, you know, trying to fly the plane at the same time, trying to draw on it, you know, make it into a small size so that you can write on it. You can just easily unfold it, refold it, put it back, do these little things and plan ahead. They'll make your life a lot easier, especially on that check ride. All right. So I have a video for you guys on how to use the plotter tool to measure courses and distances. So I want you guys to check that out. I'll put that link in the show notes. Now, I'm not going to talk about any more of the plotter tool here on audio because it's really a visual thing to show you guys. So go and check out that video and we'll go over what we talked about there. So yeah, that has been the lesson. It's a lesson one 
kind of longer than I expected on section 12 on cross-country planning. So that was lesson one on procedure for plotting your course. We're going to call it quits for this episode. Again, a little bit longer than I expected. It kind of covered everything of the charting, but it's all these things you want to think about. And now we're going to dive deep into how we do that, how we do the calculations for each leg of your flight and what information we'll need. And that's the next lesson is what information you'll need. So we'll get into that next week. But thank you guys for listening. And as always, I will talk to you next week. Hey, what's up, pilots? This is Nick. I wanted to take a second and talk about the Ultimate Private Pilot Test Prep book. Now, we don't have a ton of reviews yet on Amazon, but a lot of people have gotten it, and we have a lot of good feedback from it. And the reason why is because it blows out all those other test prep books out of the water, right? If you've gotten a test prep book before, it's got a bunch of FA written test questions. It's good for that. It's good for that rote memorization, practicing those test problems and stuff. But if you want to learn beyond that, it might have some bullet point summaries of some of the subjects. It might tell you some tips on multiple choice test strategies, but that's about it, right? So what if you want to learn this stuff at a fundamental level? What if you want to go deeper on any of these topics because you're just not getting these topics? And the reason I made this is because we don't have anything physical. And I myself am someone who really likes to study with something physical in my hands. I like to take it with me to the beach, to the park, when I'm traveling, whatever. So I wanted to make a book unlike any of the other books. So that's what I did with the Ultimate Private Pilot Test Prep. So how is it different? Well, it's got all those test questions just like the other books. It covers every single subject just like the other books, but it breaks things down and explains all the concepts in simple English. And then you add in diagrams and visual aids that those books do not have. And then you also add in QR codes. You know, those little QR codes that you scan to bring up a menu that came around during COVID. So yeah, you can do that with your mobile device, your iPad, whatever, and it'll bring up a video lesson on what you're watching. We also have a bunch of QR codes in there for free downloads, as well as free practice tests that come with the book. So it's on Amazon. I'll put a link in the show notes. It's only 37 dollars and it's got literally everything you guys that's why it's the ultimate test prep book it's the best bet you can get for one single book when you're studying for your private pilot test so check it out Hey guys, it's Nick. I want to take a second to speak directly to the student pilots out there. You might be a student pilot that is you know, wondering what to do next, how to get started, or maybe you're looking for the right ground training or flight training, or maybe you've already started ground training or flight training and you're stuck, you're in a rut, and you're looking for a change, something to help get you out of that hurdle. From my own experience in flight training, after three years, five instructors and $22,000 and wanting to quit multiple, multiple times, and then now, after seeing hundreds and hundreds of student pilots through part-time pilot, I've realized that the number one thing that makes student pilots fail is that they do not have a good fundamental understanding of the ground training when they get to the more advanced flight lessons. Now, who here has seen Top Gun Maverick? Do you remember in the movie when he says, don't think, just do? Now, when I heard this, I was like, oh my goodness, this is brilliant because this is exactly what you have to be as a pilot. Now, of course, it's not that we're not thinking, but it's that we understand things like weather, aerodynamics, what our instruments are telling us, what ATC is telling us. We have such a good core fundamental understanding of these things 
that we don't have to think about them. And when we don't have to think about them, we can instinctively feel and fly the aircraft, look out for dangers, and avoid emergency situations. If we do have to think about these things, it's going to put us behind mentally and we're going to be behind the aircraft. And when you're behind the aircraft mentally, bad things happen. And this happens when you don't have a good understanding of the ground school content. So now the first 10 to 15 hours of your flight training can go smooth, even if you don't have a good understanding of ground training, right? You can go up for a discovery flight, have a blast. You can go up, learn how to take off, learn how to land. You may be even able to solo for the first time, fly a plane for the first time everything's great and dandy but once you get into you know bad weather flying or flying at heavy heavily trafficked airports or speaking with atc for bravo clearance or cross-country flight planning and flying solo on a cross-country flight things get a little more advanced and when this happens and you don't have a good understanding of the ground school concepts you're gonna hit a wall you're gonna start to get behind the aircraft and when this happens if you have a good flight instructor, they're going to stop you and they're going to say, okay, we need to do one-on-one -on -one ground lessons. And now you're going to be paying your flight instructor to not even fly with you, but instead $50, $60, $70 an hour to just teach you the ground school content that you should already know. And, at, and the worst part is, is you're not flying with them. So the flight training that you gain, the currency, the proficiency that you gained is going to be lost and you're going to have to redo those lessons. What happens to most student pilots is they continuously hit these mental blocks where they get behind the aircraft they start making mistakes and then they catch up with the ground knowledge only to have that happen again and they start to get in this vicious cycle of having to redo trainings and repay for trainings until it gets to the point where them or their family they finally say you know what this has to stop we can no longer afford the training costs uh, without any progress you know and they end up quitting now so how do we avoid that well, here comes part-time pilot. Again, I said I went through my own experience of this and I realized that most flight training and ground training is not tailored to the modern day student pilot. And when I say modern day student pilot, I should say modern day part-time student pilot because let's face it, there's a very small percentage of us that can go and dedicate 24-7, 365 to our flight training or not even miss a beat and be able to pay for flight training without working. So most of us have a full-time job or maybe a part-time job. We have kids, we have family, we have school. We have all these other responsibilities on top of flight training. And most of these flight trainings and ground trainings are not tailored towards you. And so how is it the part-time pilot tailors to the modern day student pilot? Well, the first way we do that is by keeping ground school interesting. You wanna avoid being boring, you wanna avoid that burnout. So how we do that is we present our material in multiple, multiple ways. And you're actually listening to one of them right now. You can consume our content via this podcast and an audio recording. You can do this while you're running, while you're driving in traffic. Again, tailoring to that busy part-time student pilot. Or you can read through our written lessons. You know, I like to read, so Read. For those of you that like to read, you can read through the lessons. You can see the step-by-step -step examples and the procedures that we have. Or you can look through our study guide and see our diagrams and mnemonic devices. Have that visual cue, those visual cues and aids that help further your understanding. Or you can watch our videos. 
or you can take our quizzes and practice tests to reinforce what you just learned. And then finally, you can join us live weekly for our live Q&A and our live lessons so you can see in real time these things taught out and these examples done in real time. And then finally, you can utilize our group community form study groups, get questions answered 24-7. All of this is tailored for the modern day student pilot to keep ground school interesting, keep it from being boring, keep from having that burnout, and to find ways that you can consume the content throughout your busy schedule. And guess what? It works. We've had over 350 student pilots come through, take and pass their FAA exams without a single student failing. That's right. A single student has yet to tell me that they failed either their FAA written or their FAA checkride. So that is just proof in the pudding right there that our concepts, the way we explain things in plain written English and the way we give you multiple ways to consume this content is working. So if this sounds like something you might be interested and in, you wanna come join us, we'd love to have you. Just go to www.parttimepilot.com, click on online ground school, and we'll see you inside the online ground school. Thanks for listening and I'll see you guys next week.